Greetings, everybody. Hello and welcome to this CBRL webinar. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Carol Palmer, and I am the CBRL director in Amman, Jordan, speaking to you from Amman, from my office in Amman today. Uh, we are delving into the archaeology of the modern period and also uh, conflict archaeology to discuss um, Dr. Nicholas Saunders' book, Desert Insurgency, Archaeology, T.E. Lawrence and the Arab Revolt, published last year by Oxford University Press. The event today is chaired by Dr. Robert Bewley, Bob, um, with the distinguished historian, um, Dr. Baka Al-Majali as discussant. Um, for those of you who may not be familiar with CBRL, Council for British Research in the Levant, we're an independent research charity and membership organization that exists to advance knowledge and understandings of the peoples and cultures of the Levant. We are also one of the British Academies, British International Research Institutes, or BIRI, um, through whom, via the British Academy, we receive a grant in aid to continue our activities and operations, but we are ever grateful to our members and friends whose donations enable us to do a lot more activities too and research projects. We have an office in London at the British Academy and two institutes in the region. I'm speaking from Amman today, and we also have an institute in East Jerusalem known as the Kenyan Institute. But we also operate across the Levant to support research in the social sciences and humanities and related disciplines. For more information, please visit our website, cbrl.ac.uk. So to introduce Dr. Robert Bewley, he is chair of CBRL's Board of Trustees. He's, he's also the co-founder and former director of the Endangered Archaeology in the Middle East and North Africa project from 2015 to 2020 at the University of Oxford. He's currently actually also with us in Amman today as director of the Aerial Archaeology in Jordan project. And, um, and so we're very pleased we're in different parts of the Institute today speaking to you. Um, Bob received his PhD in archaeology from Cambridge University and was previously an undergraduate at Manchester studying ancient history and archaeology. He's the author of six books himself um, and there's more details um, on the website and you will have received um, in the mailings today. So I'm going to hand over now to, to Bob to present our speaker and our discussant, and so we can move to the main event. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carolyn. Good evening to everybody where it's evening. Good afternoon if it's in the UK. And I have spotted one person from who is, I know, in America, so it's presumably good morning there. Um, and thank you also to CBRL for putting this on. Uh, behind the scenes, much work has happened to make it happen. So thank you to Maggie and also thank you to Carol for all her efforts. Um, I'm going to introduce Dr. Backer first because he's the discussant, uh, but also with an apology because he's not actually here yet. 
Um, for those of you who know a man traffic, you will understand the difficulties there can be. Um, the other day, as part of, as Carol said, I'm here doing stuff. It took us double the time we expected to get from A to B, but that's another story. Um, Dr. Backer is a distinguished historian, um, used to be the director of the Martyrs Memorial and the Jordan Military Museum. He's currently an advisor to the Royal Hashemite Court. Um, and a key player in the renovation of the historical museum in Ma'an, a very important location, as we will hear in a minute. Um, and he is a scholar on many subjects, but particularly for tonight's uh, webinar on the Great Arab Revolt. So with luck, we will hear more from him later. Um, but the main event is uh, Professor Nicholas Saunders, and Nick is the professor, emeritus professor of material culture in the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at Bristol University. I first got to know Nick, um, I presume through the Great Arab Revolt Project, but I remember it was to do with artifacts in the First World War. Um, and in a way, that's why today's webinar is really significant. As Carol has mentioned, this is what in many places is, is referred to, some places would not even recognize a, the fact that this is 100 years old and not really archaeology. But of course it's archaeology because we're understanding the past through the material cultural remains, uh, the artifacts that people have left behind. And so I'm actually very excited to hear more about this. The book is fantastic. Um, chatting to Nick earlier, this is about access to information. And the main source of this information is a book. So if you are inspired by tonight's talk, please buy a copy of the book. Um, it focuses on Hijaz Railway. And without further ado, I will hand over to Nick uh, to give us, to take us on this journey of, of the Great Arab Revolt and the Desert Insurgency. So Nick will now share his screen. So there may be, you never know, a technical hitch, but let's hope not. The floor is yours, Nick. Okay. Right. Okay. So what I'd like to do today is to give an overview of the 10-year project. Uh, that we carried on as a great Arab revolt project in southern Jordan for the main part um, from Ma'an south to uh, Mudawara, in fact a bit further than Mudawara, uh, almost to the Saudi border. But at the same time I want to sort of pick up a couple of things that, that Bob just said in terms of what is archaeology and what kind of archaeology um, are we looking at uh, at this material from a hundred years ago or so. So I want to try and kill several birds with one stone but to mainly I think give you an overview and an introduction into the kind of archaeology that we call modern conflict archaeology which is essentially uh, interdisciplinary and informed by theory, uh, material culture, landscape, and various other um, aspects. So let me uh, make a start and make sure I, everything is working. Yep, that's fine. So we spent 10 years basically in the desert of southern Jordan. We thought initially that we would be looking at some of the um, ruined Hijaz railway stations and that it would take um, several years perhaps. Uh, within 
one hour of being on site, uh, we discovered things which completely changed uh, our view of what we were doing and what we thought we would be doing. And it went from two to three years to basically 10 years. We're looking at archeology, span anthropology, cultural and military history, museology, heritage, tourism. And we're dealing with issues of landscape, material culture, remote sensing and imagery, and most important, or one of the most important, it's archival research, uh, particularly with um, photographs. So, what we realized very, very soon um, was that we were looking at the footprint of the archaeology of the origins of modern uh, guerrilla warfare. And as with so many times that we found during the 10 years we were working there, uh, there were aspects of what T.E. Lawrence had written in Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Um, I don't want to get into, uh, was he uh, a fantasist? Was he an Arabist? Um, I will make some comments as we go through, but I think one of the really important things which we did see when we were doing field work uh, was the archeological remains of what Lawrence wrote and which is um, written here. Uh, suppose we were, as we might be, an influence, an idea, a thing intangible, invulnerable, without front or back, drifting about like a gas. Armies were like plants, immobile as a whole, firm-rooted. We might be a vapor blowing where we listed. This is the essence of the effectiveness of guerrilla warfare, uh, asymmetrical warfare. And as far as I think we in the project were concerned, the Arab revolt was the first real sustained example of modern guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla warfare had always existed, but this was modern. And as we went through the years of fieldwork, we found more, ever more examples um, of this and realized that whatever else we thought we were doing, we were also charting a course for the archaeological investigation uh, of modern guerrilla warfare. This is a map, <clears throat> several maps of our area. Uh, on the left, you can see the Hijaz railway uh, from Damascus in the north to Medina uh, in the south. Of course, it was originally supposed to go to Mecca, further south near the coast. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, this never happened. And so the railway stopped in Medina. Our project on the right-hand side map shows basically Man to Mudara and a bit further south to the actual border with Saudi Arabia. That was our area, about 60 odd miles or so. So we spent roughly 10 years investigating the archaeology, um, probably of about 18 months of the Arab revolt. The Hejaz railway was the spine 
along which we worked. It, our work took us out from and took us away from the railway itself into an extended conflict landscape that we had no idea was there. And I think most people had no real idea of uh, that it was there, apart from, of course, the Bedouin, whose tribal and traditional lands it has always been. But even they, of course, had their own interests, so they didn't necessarily look for the things that we were looking for. So here we have the railway being built by um, Hijaz Railway Line battalions, Ottoman Railway battalions, mainly made um, of Syrian uh, workers, soldiers. Below, we can see what's mainly the area uh, today in terms of the embankment. The railway lines have long been taken up and disappeared. A part of the Hijaz Railway um, has been rebuilt, reconstituted to take um, more recent and heavier and more modern um, phosphate trains. And that's what you can see on the right hand side, um, which is still in use uh, on a daily basis and goes uh, from this area down um, to Aqaba. And I'll come back to that. One of the things which we were not prepared for because we could not find um, a lot of information about, but also um, we couldn't find any archeological information about, was the actual lives um, of the railway workers themselves who built the Hijaz Railway between 1900 and 1908. And we started to encounter what we initially thought were uh, Ottoman army campsites, um, parallel rows of tent rings, as you can see several examples here next to the railway. We soon realized, of course, that this was not uh, army um, encampments at all but the beginnings of the movement across the landscape from Ma'an to Madawara uh, of the railway construction teams themselves, uh, who built their camps, uh, campsites in parallel rows, nine or 10 or 11 or 12 in a row, uh, and then another 12 on the other side. And we encountered more than 100 of these, uh, and we were completely um, surprised to, to find these. It did in fact sensitize us to a whole range of things which were going on and which we didn't realize at the time, uh, but they are very distinctive as you can see uh, from this Google Earth imagery and it goes obviously down well into uh, modern day Saudi Arabia and down towards um, Medina. And this is a, a close-up version um, of the previous uh, shot at a place called Tel Sham. And you can see the parallel rows there, but you can also see there's a couple of outliers um, in various places, which we think and archaeology has tended to reinforce. But what we're really looking at there is a, a sort of a an NCO or maybe an officer uh, who was in charge of the team 
who lived in that row of uh, tents originally, bell tents they would have been, though obviously today it's just a ring of stones. But they were uh, very sort of insightful as to the arrival of modernity in the desert, in the Middle East, uh, which had not been seen before. And so we, over the years, we became quite adept uh, at surveying and selectively um, excavating uh, various of these tent ring circles. And this is, <clears throat> this is what uh, one of these uh, looks like in close up. It's one uh, which we call Bird's Nest uh, Construction Camp. And I think this was, uh, we excavated this in 2012, we excavated several of these in 2012. Um, but our calculation was that this was probably built as a construction camp uh, around about 1905. And this one is particularly uh, well preserved because the construction technique reflects the local geology and the geology changes um, in our area from Ma'an in the north to Madawara in the south. And as it passes, as the railway passes through different geology, um, the adjacent labor camps um, are built uh, of different material and so preserve more, better or less well um, depending uh, on the local geology. And this is what uh, one of these labor camps would have looked like. You can't really see the lines, the, the parallel lines so well in this photograph, um, but it does give you a sort of a human um, aspect, dimension, um, with Ottoman surveyors and engineers standing in front of the laborers' tents. So <clears throat> between 1908, uh, between 1900 and 1908, um, hundreds of these camps uh, were built. And of course, once the railway and the bridges um, had been built in a particular area, the camp was uh, moved further south. So these tents and the people would just be recycled through the landscape. And so there's this extraordinary archaeological record beginning in 1900, finishing roughly in 1908, of the movement of huge tented um, encampments across the landscape, um, all the way down, in fact, from Damascus to Medina. Um, and it was dense enough in our area um, of Man uh, to Madara. What had drawn us initially uh, to this part of Jordan was thinking that it would be good to do uh, a modern archaeological survey and a little bit of excavation um, of the Hijaz railway stations. That soon changed, as I, as I mentioned earlier, and we'll come back to, but mainly these stations have three phases, construction, as you can see in the top image, uh, reconstruction, as you can see bottom left, uh, and ab abandonment basically, and ruination, as you can see um, bottom right. One of the really interesting uh, things which we learned as we went through 
um, this area was that, again, unknown to us in any detail at the beginning, but known in great archaeological detail by the end of the project, was the apparent survival in some areas of the original uh, Hijaz railway station buildings, which were not the original Hijaz railway station buildings at all. Um, they were recycled, hybrid, uh, with original materials for the main part, um, but the as basically part of a refurbishment in the mid 19 mid to late 1960s, where vast areas of track and buildings had been um, cleaned up, rebuilt, uh, repaired, um, presumably according to some kind of original plans of the buildings. And this is what we were encountering when we initially thought that we were encountering the ruins um, of basically First World War Arab revolt period um, attacks and destruction. That was not the case at all. However, uh, attractive um, and seductive that idea initially was. But I'll come back to that as well. And it does highlight the idea, the, the issue of what is it you're, one is looking at in terms of modern archaeology or the archaeology of recent historical times or the archaeology of recent conflicts can we be sure about what we're actually seeing and how do we actually interpret it and this is an example of that um, it's the ruined station of Gadir al-Hajj just south uh, of Ma'an and it was attacked several times but it was basically destroyed by Faisal's army, uh, Hawitat Bedouin and French artillery in April 1918 and this was a photograph taken then. Um, <clears throat> so this is a photograph from uh, the Arab revolt itself and the station has just been um, destroyed. This is our uh, excavation survey of Gadir al-Hajj in uh, 2011. And if you look at that, and then look at that, the temptation is to say, or to think, that that's basically what one would have left uh, after 1918 um, destruction there. But in fact, that's totally misleading because this station and the track was rebuilt during the 1960s. So what we're actually seeing here is the destruction that has taken place at Gadir al-Hajj between, let's say, 1968, 69, 70, and when we arrived there in 2011. So we are looking at uh, a palimpsest of, of a site partly destroyed, almost totally destroyed, during the Arab revolt, then rebuilt, then pillaged um, and blown up and materials taken away for, um, for building, building materials for other places. Uh, and then to arrive and see that and compare it with that, the temptation is obvious. Uh, 
uh, but it's not true. And to give you an example from another site, this is um, the site called the Block House, which is a bit further south again, right next to the Hejaz railway line, the one that's still being used. You can see in the background uh, just a bit over here. But if you look carefully at this building, uh, it's clear that it has been um, rebuilt and patched up and reconstructed heavily. Um, at least two thirds of this building was reconstructed during the 1960s refurbishment. Um, and certainly uh, everything above the two um, slots here for rifles, the two loopholes beneath the main window, everything above that and a lot probably below it um, has been completely reconstructed. So this is not a survival from the Arab revolt. It's a recycled monument with some new stones, but also with some of the original ones, which were um, picked up by on the site and uh, reconstructed um, here. So again, it's the case of understanding what one is seeing um, and not what one uh, wants to see and investigate. And this is certainly very obvious in the archaeology of the contemporary era, um, far more obvious and a lot easier. Uh, than looking into um, prehistory or classical antiquity. The anthropology and archaeology, uh, which I think mainly for the project and certainly from my own experience, um, anthropology is an aspect of archaeology and vice versa, depending on one's uh, interest is in archaeology or anthropology. But from our point of view, uh, it's one of the same, because an anthropology of the modern era uh, can create an archaeological footprint, an archaeological record, which 10 years, 50 years, 200 years later, uh, can be misunderstood uh, purely from an archaeological point of view. So what we have here is the Halat Amar ambush, famous on the 19th of September 1917. Top left is the actual site, which lies in no man's land, um, south of Madara and approaching the border uh, with Saudi Arabia, and for which we needed special permission and Jordanian army um, minders we could put it that way. So what you're looking at here is the actual site of the ambush that took place in September 1917, and which forever is famous from the picture below, uh, taken from uh, the film, David Lean's film, Lawrence of Arabia, 1962, uh, even though that particular site um, uh, was in uh, southern Spain and not uh, in North Africa, not in the Middle East, and certainly not uh, in Jordan. So we have uh, a famous event which has become mythologized um, and has a visual legacy in Hollywood film. Nobody, it seemed, had ever thought about 
maybe we should go and have a look at the real site and what does the archaeology and indeed the anthropology tell us of that site which we were very honored and to be able to do this there is another aspect of this of course which is on the photograph on the right hand side which is the mixture of history archaeology hollywood and tourism heritage and so what we have there is uh, a staged attack uh, on a railway carriage um, right outside of Wadi Rum with the railway uh, track itself, of course, was never there during uh, the Arab revolt. Um, so this is completely fake in that sense. But on the other hand, gives uh, the average tourist a sense of what it might have been like to be riding one of these Hijaz railway um, trains and to be attacked uh, by the uh, by the Bedouin. So here we have a, a single slide of three images, which one could talk about, or at least people from the project uh, could talk about for um, probably an hour uh, or more. Uh, I'll resist that temptation, but it does go to show how um, a modern take, a modern visual cinematic take on a historical event uh, <clears throat> produces several kinds of uh, consequences, one of which is archaeological of the real place. The other is the image that people carry in their mind from the film. And then there's this strange hybrid creation uh, that some people have the opportunity to indulge um, if they go to Southern Jordan and uh, pay their money and go on one of these um, staged events uh, by Wadi Rum. And this is part of uh, our archaeology, the Halat Amar ambush site itself. Uh, it was really, um, it took a long time to try and make sense of this, but it was the archaeology of a 10 minute ambush, as Lawrence himself said. We don't have time to go into um, the whole sequence of events. But it was, as far as we know, the first time that anybody had ever done an archaeological survey, excavation, and then interpretation in the light of what Lawrence had written, but also other people um, subsequently, uh, in terms of what was still there, what uh, bullet and mortar shell cases were still there, what did the landscape look like, um, and these squares here are the uh this is the railway uh this is the the train carriages as they came off the track and here was the bridge which was um blown and the whole event is extremely famous and very well published but actually looking on the ground in terms of what does the archaeology tell us, uh, was extremely enlightening and extremely interesting and provocative, uh, but also had unexpected consequences in terms of the archaeology, uh, which I can show you here. This, the site of the actual ambush is, is right in front of this um, mound here, so it's here. This is one of the original railway 
steel railway sleepers, which was blown um, in 1917. And interestingly, in the background, they have a hilltop, but it's one of several redoubts, Turkish Ottoman redoubts. Now, Lawrence and the Bedouin attacked this train from this area here. So it's quite clear that these Ottoman redoubts were not there in 1917, or at least when the ambush took place, because it would have been suicide. They would have been be able to kill uh, the Bedouin with ease um, who were down here if they'd been up here, um, and indeed another one out of sight up here. So we could actually work out the transformation, the creation of a post-ambush um, conflict landscape. The ambush was so uh, extraordinary that the Ottoman Turks clearly thought they had to reinforce and fortify this area uh, for against future attacks, which of course never came because the Arab revolt moved on uh, from this uh, remote area. Uh, but leaving these two um, pristine Ottoman Turkish redoubts built after the event, shutting the door after the horse had bolted. So this just being in this landscape enabled us to interpret and suggest um, ideas and possibilities uh, which had never been considered before because as far as we were aware, there was hardly anything um, about the conflict landscape itself. It was all um, in, the, in the books and the literature and in Lawrence's book, it was all about Lawrence um, and some of the Bedouin and how many Turks died and it all took 10 minutes and so on and so forth. Um, the actual on the ground archeology span of landscape, anthropology of landscape is, was totally missing. And we had this extraordinary um, opportunity to investigate um, this and this and this. The original possibility of being able to investigate a well-preserved First World War Arab revolt uh, remains in fact, came from um, Bob Bewley's aerial photograph, uh, which is, this is it here, which is taken just to the west um, <clears throat> of Ma'an Station. And it shows this extraordinary uh, crenellated um, trenches, trench line, north to south mainly, um, on the local Hill of the Birds. And you can see Ottoman soldiers in the trenches on the left-hand side. The remains of the preservation at the time Bob took this photograph and to a certain extent still today is incredible. It's possibly one of the best preserved and best, most visible uh, line of Ottoman uh, trenches um, from the Arab revolt. And the fact that it's just a few kilometers outside of modern day Ma'an um, is extraordinary, really, although how much longer it will have this well-defined profile is, is another issue. But this attracted us in the first instance to the possibility that there might be some uh, really interesting things here, 
although this was part of Ma'an Station, so it belonged to our original idea of looking at stations only. Um, but as this image shows, it, uh, it wasn't long before we were moving out into the landscape itself and the whole project transformed. At the time that we investigated uh, the Hill of the Birds, 2009, 10 and 11, uh, we didn't quite know the significance or we didn't know the significance of some of the fortifications that you can see here. Uh, the round redoubt and the uh, original trench line um, beyond it. As we became more familiar with the area, the area around Ma'an uh, and further south along the Hijaz railway line, uh, these things became chronological markers and also cultural markers because this is the kind uh, of defense mechanism uh, which was imported um, from Germany uh, during, the, during the First World War. It wasn't something that was uh, originally used. It was a kind of defense uh, which came about after the fall of Aqaba, uh, when the uh, railway needed to be defended far more um, effectively. There were many ironies um, at the time of our early years of looking uh, and investigating Ma'an. One of them was this Jordanian army Humvee um, on the edge, uh, sitting on the edge uh, of an Ottoman trench at Ma'an. And this was a, a really interesting confluence of anthropology and archaeology. We were there doing the archaeology of conflict of the First World War and the Arab Revolt. At the time uh, that we began, um, Americans and coalition forces were in uh, Baghdad. And what we found was that depending on the news that was coming in to the Arab world um, about what was happening in Baghdad, uh, local attitudes to us uh, would shift. They'd either be not particularly interested, vaguely interested, and occasionally hostile. And that was a reflection, we think, um, of whatever the uh, American and coalition forces were doing um, in over the border uh, in, in Iraq. And so we were doing conflict archaeology over 100 years before, but in a context and an atmosphere um, of, a, of a modern day version of conflict, um, just relatively short distance away um, over the borders um, in Iraq. So that in itself was an extremely um, interesting and sometimes slightly worrying um, uh, series of events. We tried um, to involve and to a certain extent did uh, local community, local school children who uh, we encouraged um, with their teachers to visit our work uh, on the Hill of the Birds by Ma'an Station itself. And this just records uh, one, of those, um, one of those visits. 
it was interesting that there was a lot of curiosity but not particularly any interest in getting in the trench and having a go or doing something which you might get in other parts of the world. I think maybe it was just too um, unusual and too uh, strange to think, why were these people here doing this? Um, and of course, uh, one of the reasons was obviously that we were there uh, looking for vast quantities of Turkish gold of which I could spend half an hour telling you extraordinary stories. What we find uh, in the um, archaeology of conflict is a light scatter of expended munitions at most of the sites that we looked at. The key thing here, which I'll come back to, is that the archaeology of this um, project was basically horizontal stratigraphy. It wasn't vertical stratigraphy, it was horizontal. And that led to all kinds of interesting and challenging uh, issues. Some of the things we found, um, Ottoman army buttons, star, uh, crescent moon, star, Ottoman officers seal, uh, matrix, shell cases, glass, um, cigarette, packet cigarette papers, cutthroat razors, um, tobacco tin lids from Bristol of all places. Um, and one of our favorites, a, a pair of what looks like exploded uh, underpants. But this is the uh, out in the desert, out in the Jebel Shera, south of Ma'an, an extraordinarily beautiful uh, and challenging landscape for the builders of the Hijaz Railway and the defenders of the Hijaz Railway during the Arab Revolt. Here we can see uh, one of the things which we discovered from, uh, from the air, uh, which looks to us like the remains of um, post holes, uh, which originally had barbed wire entanglements around. There are other explanations, but that's the one uh, we think um, is, is our favorite and what you can see here is the, um, the proximity of this small fortress to the original Hijaz railway embankment although that stretch of line is is more modern for the phosphate trains I mentioned before uh, but it shows quite clearly those uh, circular those lines of circular holes um, which we can see and for which there is historical documentation uh, that um, once Aqaba had fallen and these fortifications needed to be strengthened, uh, that swathes of barbed wire were hastily erected around some of the more vulnerable um, and isolated Hijaz railway um, locations or halts, places for quick stopping. Uh, we did the normal excavation and planning and survey, as you can imagine, and this gives you uh, an example of that. Sometimes the chronology of these um, buildings gave us insights into the construction and the defense of the whole railway from 1900 right the way through to 1918. Our most challenging area in many respects was uh, the Baton Al Ghul station area, which we called the Fasur Ridge sector, 
There are many construction camps here, um, recycled uh, medieval defenses um, and machine gun locations out in the out in the desert as the railway itself navigates down from uh, the plateau in the north down to uh, Wadi Rutum, uh, the sandy uh, wastes below. And this was for Sewer Ridge Fort, which here you can see is here and this is what it looked like uh, from the air. And this is what our survey uh, plan map um, looked like as well. Almost certainly uh, a late medieval um, location, which had been recycled, reconfigured and reinforced um, during the Arab revolt. Um, particularly interesting was this uh, area in the middle of it. Uh, which seems to have been an officer's headquarters location uh, with ceremonial paths um, leading from different buildings. Uh, quite an astonishing discovery. And not that far away was uh, an, an Ottoman mule trough because there were never enough troops out in the desert to protect the railway, never enough Ottoman troops. And what they had to do was have small patrols on mule back, uh, going from one place to another place to another place. Um, and obviously they had to feed and water the mules. And this is one of those mule troughs that we surveyed and excavated and found uh, mule shoes, as you can see in the bottom right. So you can see that as we went through year by year, we were able to build up a far more nuanced, sophisticated, insightful understanding of what went on. It wasn't just a case of blow up some railway stations and run away. There's all kinds of other things going on here. Five, five minutes, Nick. The rest of the um, area that we were looking at went stretched down south to the uh, Saudi border. And here we have a wonderful aerial view um, down uh, Wadi Rutum. Wadi Rutum station abandoned today. And Wadi Rutum army um, camp, which is different from a construction camp in the layout, the sophistication. Uh, not many people lived here for not very long, uh, unlike um, the construction camps. And here we have the example of horizontal stratigraphy. Uh, a prehistoric tool, Ottoman army buttons, um, spoon and a padlock. And very interesting indeed, uh, the discovery of what was almost certainly an overnight um, stop for a Hajj caravan uh, from several hundred years before and still used today in the sort of the archaeology of yesterday in a Bedouin overnight camp. They stop in the same place. I'll miss that one. In the last couple of minutes, I'd just like to show you some of the more extraordinary discoveries, which we can discuss later. And here was looking at photographs with the local Sheikh uh, in terms of trying to find um, a, a really ephemeral site, a Royal Air Force uh, landing ground, which you can see in the top and we managed to discover it after several years of trying uh, in the bottom here. Looks very different, but the geology gives the game away. 
even more so was a overnight raiding uh, location of a armored car, Rolls Royce armored car site. Uh, a photograph at the time, 1918, and as we rediscovered it in 2012, with diagnostic information, tins with, with the date, wonderful Rolls-Royce armored car bits and pieces. And at the end of the day, there's many more things to say, obviously, but I wanted to sort of bring the whole thing back um, into, into focus because archaeology is never, archaeology should never stop. Uh, we're always developing new ideas, new theories, looking at things in a different way, whether it's 100,000 years old, 100 years old, or perhaps um, not even that. And the archaeology of the cinema, if one wants, uh, is the Akaba film set. Uh, at Almeria in southern Spain, which was constructed uh, by David Lean for his epic Lawrence of Arabia. And this is what it looks like today. So we go back for the film, which was real. It was actually built. There is an archaeology there. Uh, the archaeology is still there, but it lies underneath. So when does archaeology stop? Uh, never. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. Absolutely fascinating. Um, and a great, a great message to end on in terms of the fact that uh, archaeology is continuous. Um, questions are coming in, but keep them coming. That's really great. And I can now introduce uh, Dr. Baka Al-Majali, who will talk for 10 minutes as a discussant and as a response to help uh, stimulate further questions. So over to you now, Dr. Baka. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, really, I read paragraphs in the book, The Desert Insurgency. It is a very great effort by Dr. Nicholas Sanders. Great thanks for him. And I still remember that I joined the team who came to Jordan, and I spent the night with them at Petra at Adum Hotel. And really, this it was maybe the first uh, effort to study the land of Jordan in the point of view of the Great Arab uh, Revolt and the rule of Lawrence at that time and the local people. Here in this study, as I read and as I hear to Dr. Nicholas Sanders, maybe he concentrate only on the foreign uh, books or foreign informations. And I feel that nothing about Arabic sources and about the local uh, uh, abuse of the people, how they see or how they did see in the past, the operations and about their memories from their fathers, grandfathers, and they still exist these people to talk about 
the uh, uh, real events at that uh, time. This book explained all the facts of the land <coughs> and about the really uh, this is it will be a very a, a great source for by the maps and the drawers that in this uh, book because really we lack to have like these uh, sources at the same time i don't uh, know why in the book uh, they uh, called the great arab revolt the gorilla war that's the revolt it was uh, by two kinds of armies the regular army and the irregular army only most of the students concentrated only on the irregular army only but not about the regular army which was consist of officers who was fought during the first world war and then be as prisoners by the british and the british themselves helped the arabs to let these officers come back to al-hijaz and to join the sharif hussein bin ali and really to build the arabic army at that time and they launch a regular attacks and regular operations in mudawara and ma'am and akaba and the tafila and all these places that the team visited at that time really we need uh, to rewrite some facts about the great unprivileged to tell that this war it wasn't only as a gorilla or gags or something else but really it was as uh, an allied forces fought with the British and the French at that time. So we need to have a kind of evaluation to the rule of the Great Arab Revolt that helped the British at that time because as one of the British American studies, American study uh, about this, I read it, it uh, says that the British and the French could win the war during the First World War without uh, the help by the Arabs. But the rule of the Arabs at that time was that the British win the war or won the war by a little cosalities and uh, less efforts. So we want really to uh, 
get a kind of concentrate on the approval why we are studying the land also the part of the land as the people who lives on this land uh, and so to concentrate that there's a kind of friendship between the Arabs and the British especially for us as Jordanians so now when we read like this a study really we need also to add some uh, facts to this uh, effort because I mean, the revolt itself it was with the political uh, sites economical sites religion uh, sites or religion dimensions or something else so we need like a kind of this uh, information to be in like this effort. This effort, we feel that it is concentrated on the land, on the stations, on the railway, on the fortifications, and uh, all of this. And really, this it was again a great uh, uh, effort. I still remember a study. Uh, it was in 1980 by a British uh, and American officers who gave this study as a master thesis or something else at Leavenworth College. I still remember the, the name of the man, but the the the, the, the this captain uh, it was at that time became as the leader of the American officers at Iraq in 1992. He is a Lebanese origin officer who really issued a study which is named the military evaluation of the Great Arab Revolt. And he tell some facts that I uh, said. So again, when we uh, really uh, read this uh, study, and sometimes I will mess about some uh, stations. I know that no any kind of stations, Ottoman stations at Wadiram, but here, here, the author mentioned that one of the stations at Wadi uh, Aram, no stations. Now, uh, the station, uh, it was built after 1976 at Wadi Aram. And before this time, and this is a station is built because to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, send the phosphate from the phosphate mines by the railway to Aqaba from Shidiya and from north of Ma'an. So, and this is started from Batan al Ghul, yeah, from Hattiya fortification there and Hattiya uh, station. And really, there are many fortifications between Ma'an and Al uh, 
Mudawara, and we know that uh, the first uh, tank battle on the land of Jordan uh, took place at Mudawara at that uh, time. And the Frederick Peak, who was the first commander of the Jordanian army, who is the first man uh, headed uh, Bedouins with camels, reached to Al Mudawara and get a fight uh, there with uh, tanks, Rolls Royce tanks at that time. So, you know, again, really like this study, it's very useful. Very grateful for us. It will be a main source to study the great Arab revolt. And uh, it will be a very valuable addition to our library. And we need more by these, uh, like this, uh, studies. And at that time, when we uh, get a little time with the team who came to Jordan, uh, I still, still remember that the, the beat between us, it was uh, about the real rule and about the seven pillars of wisdom here in Jordan. And as for me, that I uh, studied the seven pillars of wisdom, that the percentage of a trust in it, no more than 40, no more than 40, uh, because there's an imagination stories that's not real at all. And uh, Lawrence, he was in two or three places in the same time in it, with 500 kilometers between a place and another place. And really the film, which was filmed in Jordan, 1960. And my father was uh, at the police at that time, cavalry police, and he participated in the film. And he told me that they gave him $10, five for the horse and five the dinners for him at that time. Uh, Mr. Remember this. Uh, uh, these really, in general, the film, it was an insult for the Arabs because it not tell the facts. I said that 40% the facts, but no, I am a liar. It's no more than 10%. We want to see, to tell the truth, the history based on the truth first. And if you tell another stories, the people know the truth, but sometimes the media, and we can't reach the media, all the kind of medias to tell the truth, to say what is going on. Anyway, really, Again, this is a very great effort. Very uh, thanks for Dr. Nicholas Sanders and the team from Bristol University at that time. We hope to see you again here in Jordan. This is your home.
and thank you very much again. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Vaca. And um, some of the questions that have come in relate exactly to what you're talking about. Nick, I don't know whether you want to respond to anything that Dr. Vaca said. Um, I'll keep it brief so we can go to the um, questions. But thank you, um, Dr. Vaca, very much indeed um, for that commentary. And it is true that uh, we did spend a lot of time uh, talking to uh, local Bedouin people and local Arab people um, throughout the nine years of actual fieldwork. Um, and they were often extremely helpful in our investigations. It was also the case uh, that we found that more or less 50% of the local people we talked to um, were dismissive of um, Lawrence, that he was a fantasist and it was really nothing to do with his genius at all. Um, he was taking the credit um, from the regular army and from the Bedouin. The other 50% were completely different um, and said that he was a great man. He mobilized, he energized with often with gold, um, and that basically they were proud because their great-grandfathers had rode camels with Lawrence. And so we had this very interesting anthropological historical um, tension between people who said he was fake and people who said it was true, that he was great man. So we tried not to obviously take sides. We were interested in this, exploring this tension. The other thing I'd just like to comment on is that most of the work that we did, if not almost all the work we did, um, was before the uh, Faisal's army really gathered um, at Waheda, um, west of Ma'an. And so it wasn't the case that we didn't know that. Uh, we, we did know that. In fact, we were very lucky um, because we were able to investigate Waheda. We actually surveyed and excavated Waheda and talked to the local community there about their ancestral ideas and beliefs about Lawrence as a good person, Lawrence as a bad person. Um, and one other last thing, which you mentioned, and I thought I, I, I have to clarify, I probably didn't clarify when I was talking, that Wadi Rum, as you say, uh, never had a station, never had railway lines. And it was 1976, phosphate, etc. exactly as you say. Um, but not that far away was uh, the railway station at Wadi Rutum which is a completely different place. Um, and we initially became a bit confused, but it soon became clear that what we were looking at was a, a chronology of the railway from the original railway to the 1976 phosphate railway. And the 1976 one is where you have the tourism uh, attacks on the, the railway, um, et cetera, et cetera, as you say. So I think that it's really, really valuable to get your input. Um, but 
because it was 10 years worth of work, we couldn't mention everything. And so it's probably understandable that it's uh, maybe we've made some mistakes and didn't make other things more clear. Um, but we did try very much to get to the heart of the anthropological dimension, not just uh, digging and surveying. So I think what you said is extremely true, extremely valuable. And we just hope we did something um, as you indicated that, you know, Jordan and other generations of historians um, can be proud of and can use in order to further our understanding of the Arab revolt. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. And, and just, just while we're on the Lawrence theme, I don't know, when, Nick, whether you can see the questions, but the first one here is from Charles. I, I presume the surname is pronounced Harlick, but forgive me if I'm wrong. And the question is, would you consider T.E. Lawrence's seven pillars of wisdom central to your archaeological investigations? Also, was there evidence that confirmed uh, Lawrence's account in an interesting way? And I think we've covered some of that, but you might want to just close that question off. Um, I can't. Where, where, where can I see that? If you click on Q&A... It's the first uh, one in Q and A. Uh, right. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Hold on. Um, yeah. Well, this is an interesting question, and it does um, relate back also to uh, Dr. Backer's uh, commentary. There's many things written about Lawrence about how reliable he is or is not, uh, how much of um, a liar he was, uh, or how brilliant he was at mobilizing the Bedouin, etc. What we found was what we were doing was not investigating Lawrence. We were not driven by uh, interest in Lawrence. We were interested in the landscape the history of the railway, the way um, the Bedouin were drawn in uh, and mobilized through gold um, and their own ideas and uh, tactics. That was what interested us. The interesting thing here is that when it comes to describing the military activities, when Lawrence was present, and of course he wasn't always present, uh, but when he was, Seven Pillars seems to be extremely accurate in terms of the archaeology of what we found. It wasn't um, a completely different interpretation than Lawrence himself. Elsewhere, Lawrence may have exaggerated. Well, he admits he exaggerated his role. He admits that many times. Um, but in terms of his interpretation of the historical conflict locations, we found that the archaeology supports that. Uh, and so that's like the first part of the question. So we found that it, what we were doing was a test, an archaeological test of what Lawrence had written as a history, as a memoir. Um, as he himself says, a confabulation of many elements rather than a straightforward, historically true account. Yeah. I think many people don't always read that in Seven Pillars, mm. um, that he was his own best or worst cr uh, critic. 
the evidence confirmed TEL's account in an interesting way. The big example has to be um, the Tooth Hill site, which we discovered the Rolls-Royce armored car overnight site, which was just um, Tutankhamun moment, mm. I suppose you could say, um, because there is a quote which comes from Seven Pillars of Wisdom, where Lawrence is there at that site, drinking coffee, possibly rum, um, and observing the fire and the burning of the sticks and the crackling uh, of the sticks in the night. And that was the campfire that we excavated. Hmm. So sometimes it's an astonishing, truly astonishing um, bringing together of history, which could be literary and archaeology, uh, which is not literary. It's there and it has to be explained. Um, so, you know, that's a long answer to a very uh, short and precise double question, but I hope no, it answers some of you. <laughs> it is very important. I like the way you say Tutankhamun moment, but actually Richard III moment. Who would have thought you would have been able to find a, you know, English king under a car park in Leicester, you know, same as finding that in, in the desert. Uh, we'll move on to the next question. Veronique, there was, were the bullet holes found and counted on the walls of Tel Sham station from the attack by Lawrence's party, or was the station also rebuilt in the 1960s? Yeah, uh, well, Veronique, um, I think almost all of the station buildings, the main station buildings were rebuilt. They were rebuilt, um, a lot of the original materials were laying around where they'd been blown up or, or ransacked subsequently. Uh, but sometimes local um, quarries were used to find new stone. But those local quarries were part of the original uh, landscape for building the Hijaz mm. Railway in the first place. Mm. So a lot of those quarries were used in 1900 and they were reused in the, the 1960s. And we've chronicled that, and we had no idea about that at the time. Um, so that, too, is a really interesting um, aspect. But it does go back to the point I made near the beginning, that you have to be very careful what you think you're investigating, mm. because it wasn't investigating um, what happened when Lawrence attacked, or when others attacked without yeah. Lawrence. Um, it was, in fact... Uh, recycled and rebuilt in 1967, 68, 69. And the next question sort of relates to that, which is a question from Riyad Ashmeel asking, you know, are there any Ottoman sites that are were kept away or are in a location that, that, that so there weren't any signs of deconstruction or refurbishment? Yeah, there were ones that we found out in the desert when we began to realize that the conflict landscape was not just a hundred meters either side of the railway. Mm, mm. Uh, it actually went out into the desert. Mm. And the reason it went out into the desert is because the Ottomans did not know where the Bedouin and Lawrence would be attacking from. Yeah. Mm. The Bedouin would be on horses and camels. Um, they could come and go like lightning and Lawrence would be in an armored car and he could do the same. And they came from all different directions. 
And so the Ottomans had to go out into the countryside and create fortifications. Um, and those fortifications must have been known about for the last hundred years by the Bedouin, but they had no obvious significance or importance. And the Bedouin may not even actually known exactly what they were. Mm. They knew they were there. They were part of the traditional landscape, but that was it. So yes, the answer is yes to that. Places that are untouched, that's good. And the next question from a PhD student, Tanya Newbury-Smith, her interest is warfare in the desert. And although she's got many questions, the first one is, how do you define, uh, and this is obviously a quote, I don't remember you saying it, but first example of modern warfare, especially if you only excavated a limited area? <clears throat> yeah, no, we, our view was, is that this was the first example of modern um, guerrilla, what we would call um, modern guerrilla warfare, which was uh, a synthesis of traditional um, Arab Bedou raiding uh, with modern technology. So whether that's a machine gun or a bomb um, or a, a rifle uh, or a Rolls-Royce armored car or an aircraft biplane, um, the idea of adopting traditional Bedou raiding strategies, but with modern uh, equipment. That makes it the first or one of the, the most important early um, examples of modern guerrilla warfare, not traditional guerrilla warfare. Yeah, thank you. That's interesting. Um, and then Ryder Kuba, can you expand a bit on Ottoman archives? Uh, their usefulness, accuracy, e.g. officers might have had incentive to exaggerate in reports and accessibility uh, from the Turkish government? Well, it may well be that Dr. Bakker can shed more light on that. <laughs> we, we found it absolutely impossible to access any um, Ottoman archives, either in... Um, Istanbul or um, or Ankara yeah, yeah or Ankara yeah. Um, I'm sure that if the situation was different we might have been able to access some um, but we found for 10 years we couldn't access any at all that may have changed now um, I don't know it could have been our fault I don't know uh, we were told that we would just not be given access to anything. Um, we did manage to contact two Turkish academics in Istanbul who were extremely knowledgeable and actually could read the script, which was even more amazing mm. to us. Um, and they came down on, for one season to see what we were doing mm. and did some translations in the Ottoman Man cemetery um, and then we never heard from them again and it was clear that they were told um, you know not to be involved whatsoever so who knows what went on there but the Ottoman archives must have extraordinary resource of information um, absolutely amazing we would have given anything to use it we got nothing at all Thank you. Uh, Dr. Vaca, do you want to say anything? Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, first I remember the name of the American officer. Uh, his name was uh, John Abizaid. Then he became John Abu Zaid uh, when he was the leader of the American army at uh, Iraq who wrote about the Great Arab uh, uh, Revolt. Something to talk about the archive. It's a very important thing. And I went several times to St. Anthony College at Oxford University. And I have the opportunity to read some of the Florence papers there. They're all of the Globasha papers and Lawrence papers at that university at St. Anthony College. We got many uh, of uh, uh, them, but about the Ottoman archive, uh, we have some difficulties in uh, reaching it because of the language. Uh, the archives written in uh, the Arabic uh, letters, but now in Turkey since 1925, there is the Latin uh, letter, letters uh, now, and this is a very, uh, now there are very, very few uh, persons who can read the archives and we have uh, here researchers who went there and uh, brought some of their archives, but not all uh, the sources. They can't reach many of the sources that we need because there it was a kind of uh, uh, classifications for uh, uh, it. We have here sources, we have uh, uh, studies, and I have the opportunity to meet uh, five persons who participated in the revolt. One of them, I met him at 1986. His name is Muhammad, the elder son of Udi Abu Tay, who entered Aqaba with Lawrence on the 6th of July, 1917. And he told me, and I have a record for these and videos, uh, about all the events at Aqaba uh, at that time. And he told me that we didn't see Lawrence. He told me that Lawrence, we saw him at the second day. And he spent about two days, and then he went to Egypt with two guides. This is, and he told me, and he was uh, about 17 years old at that time, who was uh, fighting with his uh, father, Sheikh Ode Abu Tayyip. Really, we have very difficulties, many difficulties in reaching the archives. And since the uh, past period, we have been research, really research who uh, concentrate on the uh, archive. We have papers, we have uh, some books like uh, George Antonio's uh, book, Padre uh, Qalaji uh, book, about uh, yeah, these uh, books. We have what wrote about uh, Lawrence. We have many studies, especially British studies about uh, the life of uh, uh, Lawrence, and really we have a historian, his name is Suleiman Musa, who wrote uh, uh, many things, uh, many books about 
the Great Revolt and uh, uh, Lawrence and his effort was translated into Japanese language. And he went for about uh, three months to London and get many of the documents about the history of Jordan, the rule of uh, the British in uh, Jordan during the mandate period and also during the uh, uh, Great uh, Revolt. So, uh, thanks you again, and we hope that there will be a kind of cooperation to reach for more uh, documents. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bakker. Um, ominous sign that Carol has entered the fray. We've got two minutes left. I don't know whether we can expand a bit, but there's, there's a couple of questions that haven't been answered. One, very quickly, uh, which I think you covered in a way, Warren Smith, did you come across any hostilities while you were working? And was there any local <clears throat> assistance from interested locals uh, and any local stories which may have helped you in your work? Uh, we didn't come across any um, inherent hostility at all. The only hostility we did come across was, as I mentioned at, at Marne in the early um, years, when there were things going on in Baghdad with the Americans and coalition. Um, and then there could be uh, people coming up and saying things to us about that, uh, which is quite understandable. Um, particularly in Ma'an, which is a very traditional um, part of Jordan. So that was the only problems we really had. And once that had kind of cleared the air, we didn't have, I don't think we had any hostility whatsoever. Um, a lot of help we did get from local sheikhs and local Arabs passing through, passing by. Um, and on several occasions, we were taken to places um, by um, local Bedouin did we know this did we would we like to see that they didn't want money they didn't want anything there was no aspect like that to it they just wanted to show us because they could see how interested we were yeah. um so not so much local stories but local knowledge yeah. um where they would help us so yes and and i would like to finish on the question about um virtual um, reality and technology but before i do graham bark has, has, has posted a thing which is more of a comment that um, the British Institute Ankara yesterday and the Society of Libyan Studies hosted a lecture by Professor Fortner on the 1911 Ottoman-Italian war in Libya and it was commented that this was an early example of modern guerrilla warfare by the Italians that Ottoman officers failed to learn from with disastrous results for their armies in World War One and that may help Tanya Newbury-Smith and I'd suggest maybe if Tanya and Nick can link up outside the meeting that would be really useful but the question i wanted to get to was how do you see the role of new technologies if carol will allow us time uh, such as virtual reality and augmented reality in remodeling and revisualizing that history and telling the story as it should be question mark well there's a question how should it be told uh, and what are the challenges to do that so there you are nick in one minute yep. two questions um <laughs> really <laughs> One is that I think the potential for retelling, reinterpreting, remodeling, remodeling, revisualizing um, what we did and, and more is tremendous. Uh, we found that there was virtually no television interest in what we were doing when we were doing the project at all, zero, uh, which was amazing to us. Um, the other thing is that the nature of the project and the timing of it meant that um, we had virtually no new technologies. We were 
we didn't have, and I don't think there were drones um, or reliable LIDAR. Um, we had to make do with aerial photographs from private archives, uh, the you Imperial mean, War do. Museum. Fantastic results. And your very, very useful, um, indicative and path-breaking work, um, Bob. So, but apart from that, we, we, we didn't have access to the technology. We were not funded uh, to that extent. Um, and I'm not even sure now, if we went back, we would be allowed to use drone technology in that area near to the Saudi border, for example. But the potential for reimagining uh, a more accurate, perhaps, um, view and version of what went on in 1916, 17 and 18, I think is extraordinary. And it amazes Neil Faulkner, my co-director and myself for all these years, that there's been zero interest at all. Mm. And there are, there are questions by Sean Mackay, Tanya again and Veronique, but maybe we can deal with those outside and e email the answers to those specific questions. So, Carol, should I hand over to you for the final words as we are already three minutes over? Thank you. Thank you very much, Bob. Um, and many, many thanks to our, our speaker, um, Professor Nick Saunders, today for a fascinating insight and overview of the study, 10 years of study and, and um, much research that went into the book. Um, that we encourage everybody to, to have a look at. Um, I've been reading sections of the book and looking at, uh, as I've been looking at the slides and hearing the, uh, the commentary, and that's an excellent sort of access into um, the archeology span of, uh, of conflict and a particularly um, important conflict for, for the foundation of, of Jordan. And, also, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Bakker Al-Majali for being with us today and for his very valuable um, insights today at, at this event and comments um, and also for previous events that you've attended with us where you've really given us um, the, the, Jordanian, the Jordanian viewpoint and allowed us to sort of engage in um, in the and sort of professional side and how Jordan sort of views, <laughs> views uh, this particularly pivotal moment in its history, bearing in mind that this year, 19, 2021, is the centenary of, uh, of Jordan too. Um, so thank you very much, Dr. Bakker. And thank you, um, Bob, <laughs> for um, your expert chairing and guiding us through the questions. And and also, I'd like to give a thanks to, to Maggie, who's in the background, um, who's been helping us all today and giving some notices, um, as you can see, to everybody in the chat. And thank you to you for joining us today. We really hope that you enjoyed the event. Um, and please keep an eye out for future CBRL, uh, CBRL events. And if you're not already on our mailing list, please do join our mailing list. and consider becoming a, a member in future. Um, you can find also um, all of our previous webinars um, on our YouTube site, CBRL video, and also podcasts on our SoundCloud site to CBRL Sound. We're currently planning events for 2022, so keep in touch and 
thank you very much to everyone who's participated today and attended today. It's been a pleasure having you all with us and hearing the very fascinating conversation. And thank you once again to Professor Nicholas Saunders for this talk. <laughs>